Of the, uh, over the years, it's uh, had a lot of interest in students in the town, and uh, we try to have uh, a Christian presence in this part of the city um, with the residents, the commercial sector, uh, and, uh, and students as well. The reason why we do these talks, or we've been uh, putting these talks on over recent years, is that uh, one of the students in the church came and said they're having real problems in integrating <coughs> studies with their Christian faith and it was sort of doing a head in and uh, we didn't think that we could answer all the questions ourselves but we knew some people who could so at that stage we started uh, a, a very uh, warm relationship with the Labrie Study Centre over in Hampshire and there they came across and gave us some lectures which were very very helpful now we've sort of broadened uh, this year and rebranded as uh, Be Thinking, and there's a, an excellent website called www.bethinking.org, which uh, has got a lot of excellent material on this exact subject of integrating um, thought and uh, Christian faith. So I recommend that to you if you've never seen that website. So uh, these talks are uh, in that uh, traditional, in that idea. Uh, and that's what we're aiming to do this evening. So uh, that's uh, us and that's the talks. And I simply remains to give a very warm welcome to uh, Philip and uh, Miriam Sampson, who are going to speak to us this evening, or whatever they're going to do. Uh, and um, they uh, are no strangers to Brighton. You both studied here, didn't you? In, in this No. 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 <laughs> no. But you came to this church, didn't you? <coughs> yes. Uh, and that was a while ago. So you're currently based in Portsmouth, and I know that Phil's been working with uh, um, the probationary service, you're an advisor with you, and then the courts and young people. And at present, he's uh, spending most of his time writing. And that brings me to... Uh, you've got some books to sell by the look of it. There are some copies to sell, but most of them just need to look at if you're interested. So this is a, a specimen of, of what uh, Philip has written, Six Modern Myths Challenging Christian Faith, which is an excellent book, and I warmly commend that to you. So... Um, you're very welcome. Thank you ever so much for coming. I'm really pleased to see you. Um, let's have a prayer. Lord God, you are the maker of everything, and we believe that you enable us to love you with our heart and soul and strength and mind. And we pray that we may not be slack in loving you with our minds. We particularly pray for those who are involved in the world of thought in this uh, university city that our thinking may honour you. And we pray that this time we spend this evening may be used in exactly that purpose. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, thank you very much.
Phil for that, that welcome. Um, you may think we've chosen a rather odd title tonight. Actually the person responsible for giving us this idea is uh, in the audience tonight but I'm not going to embarrass her by, by pointing her out. Um, <coughs> but we're going to, <coughs> sorry excuse me, <coughs> I'm just recovering from a very nasty cold so I hope my voice will hold out. Um, We'll, we'll, we'll be unpacking this title a bit uh, as, as we go through the first part of this, this talk. So um, this evening we're going to be looking at postmodernity from a Christian point of view. Um, but you may be able to guess from the, from the term postmodernity that it's not really possible to talk about the postmodern without also thinking about the modern, because postmodernity really defines itself by its relationship to modernity, over against modernity. So that's why our title tonight includes the terms modernity and postmodernity. So why should Christians be concerned about these ideas? Well, if you've encountered these terms, you may initially have come across them in academic courses or in the lecture theatre or books that you're reading to do with courses you're taking. Um, but they're not terms that we can just forget when we close our textbooks and get on with the rest of our lives. If these terms are important at all, these ideas, they're important because we encounter the things that they describe throughout life as, as well as in our studies. Um, and this includes our lives of, of faith and worship, as we'll, we'll make clear um, as we go on. So we're going to start by surveying this, this wider context about modernity and postmodernity outside of, of the purely academic, then later on in this talk, we'll focus more on, on the, the theory and the ideas. Um, now, the, ter the term postmodernity sounds as if we're talking about something that comes after modernity. And, and in a sense, that, that is right. Fifty years ago, for example, no one was talking about postmodernity. Twenty years or so ago, the, the term was beginning to emerge, and now it's everywhere. Now, 12 years ago, a key book about postmodernity, which we've, we've got over there by David Lyon, defined it as follows, and I quote, Postmodernity is a multi-layered concept that alerts us to a variety of major social and cultural changes taking place at the end of the 20th century within many, in quotes, advanced societies. So it's not just to do with ideas, it's about a whole range of things happening in society and the culture. Now, those changes have accelerated even further since the beginning of the 21st century. But alongside the postmodern, many aspects of modernity still shape the world in which we live today. So we're in a, we're in a kind of mixture, really. So that brings us to the other part of our title. Why big brain and big mouth? Well, when we think about modernity and postmodernity, we often find that things, the things we encounter fall into opposing pairs. Um, and we're going to spend a little bit of time exploring some of those opposing pairs now, just to clarify some of these, these relationships. Um, and then when we finish that, we'll come back to this idea of big brain and big mouth, and I think that will be clarified a bit uh, by then. Um, so as, I've, as we've already said, modernity and postmodernity aren't just about the world of ideas. They're about social and cultural phenomena as well. So things like work, 
TV programs and even the church are affected by them. And we're going to explore some of those contrasts between modernity and, and post-modernity across all these areas through a short activity, which is where we come to those slips of paper that I've given you. Now, I think a couple of people came in after I'd given them out, so if some generous person sitting near them would like to share. Um, what we want you to do is look at the words that you've got on your pieces of paper, um, which are in different colours. Um, what we've done is we've, we've, we, we're going to explore a number of topics um, in which we will, you will find contrast between modernity and post-modernity. We're going to start with knowledge, um, and the words that are in black are to do with knowledge. We're going to move on to um, social and the cultural, the media and, and the church. So what I'd like you to do, if you've got one of those words that are written in black, um, I'd like you to think about whether you think the word that you've got or the phrase that you've got is characteristic of the modern or the postmodern and just kind of call them out. We won't spend a lot of time on this. Let's move it along quite quickly. Call out. So say, um, uh, I think this one is modern and it's whatever it may be and then postmodern the same. And then we're, we're going to show on the screen in true Blue Peter fashion a list that we prepared earlier. Okay. So it'd be interesting to see if our list agrees with yours. So anybody got anything? Well, since it's what I was talking about last week, I'll say stories are definitely postmodern. Right. Okay. What would you? Reason. Yep. Uh, modern. modern. Mhm. Mm Science. Modern. Right. Uh, intuition. Postmodern. Yeah. Deconstruction. Hang on. Deconstruction. Postmodern. Yep. I've got relativism, which is postmodern. Propositions, which are modern. Right. Progress. Yeah? Objectivity, modern subjectivity, post-modern. Oh, you had the, the two opposing <laughs> pairs, right. <laughs> Obviously, it didn't shuffle well enough there. Any, any other take, anything else? Diversity. Yes, diversity. Yeah, diversity. I think it's post-modern. And was there another one over uh, here? Universal truth, modern, yeah. modern father. Modern. Oh, we just have the black ones for the right. moment, yeah. Anything else? Anything else written in black? I think we pretty much... Sorry? And yeah? Great. Okay, I think let's look and see if that's pretty much exhausted our list. Sorry, we, did, we wanted these all to come on at once and we, we couldn't quite get it to happen anyway. If you just keep your finger on it, it probably should just keep doing it. Right, did we get all of those? I think we did, and I think your list agreed with, with ours. Okay, so let's move on to the social then. Now, this is the ones that are in, in blue. I think our printer played up a little bit, and the blue ones have got a little bit of pink on them as well. So if you've got something that looks faintly rainbow-coloured, that's probably one of, one of these. So this is the, the social and the economic. Um, so what, what have we got? Manufacturing. Manufacturing, yes. Modern or postmodern, do you think? You think modern? Mm-hmm. Consumption. Hmm, interesting one, that. We'll, 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 we'll bracket that one and, and, and come back and see what you think. Yeah? Right. Right, interesting, yes. Has anyone got anything else to do with jobs? Yes. Do you? Oh, that's interesting. Right, okay. Um. <laughs> uh huh. Any other blue ones? Global village, postmodern. Right. Human rights, same modern. Okay. 
think we've probably got most of them now. Do you want to do so it'd be interesting to see? I think we have some slight different oh, control mastery, sorry, didn't get that one. And nation state, yes. You you got both of those. Oh sorry Tim, I should have given you more time. Right, okay. So we but interestingly these, these two probably should have been next to each other. We, we looked at the well, production and consumption. So the, the manufacturing processes and the production are very much associated with the modern. I think the consumer society, okay, it's got its roots in the modern, I, I give you that, but I think it's, the consumption has become much more characteristic and, and, and central in, um, in post-modernity. And we had the career, the sort of job that you go through for your life and develop it in a systematic way as uh, modern, and the job portfolio, the kind of you know, moving between different, different things um, as the postmodern. Okay, on we go. So let's look at, at cultural. And this is a sort of nice shade of kind of magenta, I think. Um, anybody got anything on that? Right, okay. I think, uh, is, is, that, is that pink or is that red? Hold on to that one. That, we're going to come to that in a minute. Anyone got this? Images. Images. Yeah. Words as modern. Sorry, it's probably with the lights and uh, it's not so easy to see. Right. Mhm. Sorry. Yeah. No play as in you know playfulness. Modern. Any, what do other people think about that one? Sorry? <laughs> well, we'll, 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 see, we'll see how that one, what that one contrasts with. Has anyone got anything that would contrast with play? Need? Mm-hmm. What do you think need is? Mm-hmm. I think that's red. <coughs> Sorry, the pink and the red are a bit close. Okay, let's, let's move on then. Let's see what we've got there. So we've got purpose, need, utility, words, content, and a moral consensus under modernity. Play, desire, choice, images, context, and moral pluralism under postmodernity. So the, the, the things in modernity are much more kind of directed. Um, the things in postmodernity are much more, more diverse um, and uh, less, less focused in, more focused out. Okay, now we're going to move on to the media now. So we've got sort of things like TV programs and, and stuff. Um, I think these are a shade of green. Anyone got a green one? Yeah. Broadcasting, I think, is postmodern. Broadcasting, you think, is postmodern? That's interesting. Has anyone got anything else about something casting? Podcasting. Now, if those are the contrasts, what do you reckon? Broadcasting, podcasting. Which is the, which is the modern and which is the postmodern? Podcast is the postmodern, isn't it? So broadcasting, you know, the same thing goes out to everybody. You've got your two, three, four TV channels. Podcasting, everybody's got their own little individual take. You can listen to it when you want and... Uh, and so on. So it's, it's, it's instead of one size fits all, it's lots and lots of, uh, of choices. Um, okay, what have we got in the sort of TV programmes and things? University, University Challenge. Challenge, which is prehistoric, <laughs> still, it's still on. <laughs> okay. 
And what did you got? Definitely postmodern. And there should be one more. Okay, let's have a look see if we agree with that. So two diff- very different styles of quizzes there. One, one which is definitely modern, all about language, and another one which is, well, I'm not quite sure what you'd say it's about, really. Um, okay, let's move on finally. Now, this may be a little more controversial. Um, some thoughts here about modernity and postmodernity in the church. Um, and uh, so the point we're making here, really, is that um, the, the church isn't, isn't immune from the influence of these sorts of cultural features and so let's just have a look at how some of them may have influenced um, the church so this is the red ones what have we got right okay I've got word but it probably depends how you think about it probably right okay what you mean by it, it, I'm sure it does yes <laughs> doctrine is modern yes Holy Spirit. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Worship, which could be both quite easy. Okay. Demystifying. Well, let's let's have a look. So we don't want to spend too long on this. Now, of course, we're not saying that these things are. For example, we're not saying that God the Father and the Holy Spirit are opposing things, and that uh, one is emphasised. That, that there needs to be an emphasis on one or the other. What we're saying is we're looking at the way that things perhaps get emphasised within modernity and within post-modernity. So the emphasis on word was quite strongly in, in uh, modern culture. The emphasis on worship has perhaps become greater uh, in, in post-modernity, but we'll come back to that. Okay, so through this exercise, we've, we've discovered um, that we're all very aware of this modern, post-modern context in which we live, we live today and the, the mixture of things that are around us that are influenced by modernity and post-modernity. Um, even if we're not fully aware of the, uh, the ideas behind these things. So the values of modernity we found focused on things like reason, science, objectivity, progress. Really um, are focusing on the mind in a rather disembodied way, hence the idea of big brain. Um, placing a high value on pronouncements from people that know the experts. Perhaps this could be exemplified by um, a radio and TV program, which really is prehistoric. I remember my parents enjoying this one, called The Brains Trust. Oh, somebody here remembers it. Um, In which a group of of, of (laughs) eminent people, um, scientists, philosophers, other experts, as I recall, sat around at a table for an erudite discussion of questions that had been sent in by listeners or viewers, which was chaired by a man soberly dressed in a suit. Um, very, very static, very much focused on the experts and their ideas. Now, in postmodernity, the emphasis has shifted to subjectivity, relativism, choice and play, where many different points of view are heard. Everyone can have their 15 minutes of fame, as Andy Warhol put it. So rather than, than something like the Brains Trust, where viewers ask the questions and trust the experts to answer them, at the other extreme, we now have something like Big Brother's Big Mouth, where you've got a studio audience all chipping in with their views on the instant celebrities who are living in full public view in the Big Brother house, and a flamboyant young comedian is egging them on and adding his own two penneth wherever possible to stir up the mix, a completely different cultural phenomenon. 
Okay, that's our introduction then, and I'm going to hand over to Phil to uh, start <coughs> looking at this from a, from a Christian perspective. Okay, well, we've tried to give you an, an overview of uh, modernity and postmodernity, not by giving a, a definition, but by illustrating from a number of different areas of life. Uh, and the question that we're going to look at for the remainder of the time is how Christians have responded to this postmodern turn. Um, there have basically been two responses. The first is that, that some Christians have just rejected it. Okay, this, is, this is not something which is helpful. Uh, it undermines Christian values. It undermines ideas of objectivity. Uh, and uh, uh, not, not something that we, we uh, have got much time for. The second response has, has been one of accommodation. Yeah, this is new, this is something we need to get into uh, and uh, uh, buy into it. So, traditionally, Christians have been more suspicious of postmodernity than modernity, or at least those who reject it have, um, mainly because it's perceived as undermining um, Christian truth and values. This has resulted in a flight from post-modernity and taking refuge in the old modernity, the old ideas that we're familiar with and that we're comfortable with. More recently, the second turn, the second uh, response uh, of accommodating to post-modernity uh, has been associated with what's called the emerging church. Um, and uh, many uh, um, people active in the emerging church have welcomed post-modernity. Uh, they see in it a greater concern with uh, issues which are of vital importance to them, issues like authenticity, community, spirituality, and feel much closer uh, to uh, the way that those, those uh, things are dealt with in post-modernity than they do to the traditional evangelical emphasis upon truth, doctrine and morals. Now, in, in what remains, we will be arguing that both these responses are faulty. Okay? So you have two responses, rejection and accommodation. The first, taking flight from post-modernity and refuge in modernity, and the second, accommodating to post-modernity. Uh, and we will be arguing that these are both faulty, and we'll be making three main points. Firstly, we'll be arguing that modernity is not all that it claims to be. It claims to be testimony-free truth, objective truth, and we will be uh, arguing that it is not narrative or testimony-free truth. Okay? Science claims to provide objective truth about the world, free from subjective or superstitious bias. In fact, we will be arguing that science, uh, as we learn it, involves stories, uh, and that we learn scientific truth as we trust other people. So, modernity is not all it claims to be. Secondly, post-modernity is more than it says it is, more than it claims to be. In fact, uh, postmodern critique makes claims about reality, about ethics, and about truth. In reality, nobody lives as though all points of view are equivalent. Thirdly, we will be arguing, do please come in, have a seat. 
Thirdly, we will be arguing that Christian truth is a richer vision of the world than either modernity or postmodernity. Or to put it another way, both modernity and postmodernity are narrowed down versions of this richer biblical vision. We need not be defensive. Biblical truth is a foundation for both life and study, for living well and for seeking truth in God's world. So we will be claiming that both the modern and postmodern positions have fatal flaws and that the Christian vision is richer than either of them. Sorry about all this bobbing up and down. Um, before we go any further with this, we want to introduce the idea of a worldview, um, because this is going to help us as we compare the perspective of modernity and postmodernity and look at them both from a Christian perspective. So what do we mean by, by a worldview? Well, there are two key ideas. The first of them is about vision, and the second is about assumptions, sometimes also called presuppositions. So let's think about vision first. About 20 years ago, an important book was published entitled The Transforming Vision, Shaping a Christian Worldview. Again, we've got a copy over there that you can have a look at. Um, the authors explain the importance of worldview like this, and I, I'm going to quote. Humans are creatures of vision. They make life choices and they make them in terms of their way of looking at things. Consider the biblical notion of a walk of life. The scriptures tell us to walk by the spirit and not by the flesh in Galatians 5. Paul doesn't mean we should leave our bodies behind, attempting somehow to be bodiless spirits. No, he's saying that the orientation of our walk of life, our direction, should be one of obedience to God, not disobedience. We are to set our eyes and our vision one way and not another. This gets to the heart of what a worldview is. A worldview is never merely a vision of life, it's always a vision for life as well. A worldview determines our values. It helps us interpret the world around us. It sorts out what's important from what is not, what is the highest value from what is least. A worldview then provides a model of the world which guides its adherence in the world. It stipulates how the world ought to be and it thus advises how its adherents should conduct themselves in the world. So that's the idea of a vision of life, a vision for life. Now, although these authors were writing about a Christian worldview, their claim is that everyone has a worldview of one kind or another, a vision of, of what they think life is all about, even though they may not be able to articulate it and spell it out in, in detail. Um, the other point about this is that a worldview isn't just an individual vision of life. It's something that's shared. Now, a worldview can be shared across a whole society if there is a common culture, or there may be various subcultures and groups within society which have differing worldviews. And this is something we've become increasingly familiar with in today's pluralistic society, where you may have people living in one geographical area who have very different ethnic and cultural backgrounds, different religions, different ways of life. And I'm sure that Brighton is a very pluralistic um, city. So in terms of worldview, the idea of vision and shared vision is important. But the other aspect is the assumptions or the presuppositions that people have, the things that they, they don't question, that they take for granted in their thinking about, about issues and about the way they live. 
Now this time I want to quote from an American writer who isn't a Christian, but who also recognises the influence of worldview in shaping the way we think, the choices we make and the way we behave. And she emphasises the way in which we all make certain assumptions about ourselves and the world we live in, which shape the way that we think and behave. Most of the time we just act on these assumptions without thinking about them. So how can we become aware of them? Now this is what this writer suggests, and, and I quote, We must talk in order to bring to the surface underlying assumptions, to nudge ourselves and each other to reflect upon the reasons why we think and act as we do. We carry unexamined mental baggage, now centuries in the making. This metaphorical baggage we need to put through the security check, you know, like they do at the airport, um, to see what's in it. We must open up this baggage, examining it in the light of its consequences for our future. Now, this process of bringing our assumptions or presuppositions to the surface is important for Christians as well. After all, becoming a Christian is just the beginning. We've all been brought up and educated within modernity and increasingly post-modernity, and we will have taken on many assumptions and ideas from these contexts. But if we're serious about recognising the Lordship of Christ in all the areas of our lives, then the way we think, the way we do science or create art or music, um, the assumptions we make about the world we live in, the way we relate to others, all of these need to be examined in the light of the Bible and its teaching. And this is how we can develop a consistent Christian worldview. Now, um, that would be the subject of a whole new lecture. That's not what we're here to talk about tonight. Um, but we wanted to introduce this idea of a worldview because we're going to be looking at some key characteristics of the modern and postmodern worldviews. So, what sort of assumptions shape a worldview and where do they come from? And how do these assumptions contribute to a vision of life and a vision for life? Well, there are four key questions that any worldview addresses, and those are going to come up on the screen. The first is the question of identity. Who am I? And what am I, in other words, what am I here for? The second is the question of my relationship to the world. Where am I? The third is the question of good and evil. What stands in the way of finding fulfillment? What's wrong? And the final question focuses on what could be done to put right what's wrong and find fulfillment. What's the remedy? So as we, we just suggested for a Christian, the answer to these questions is going to be found in the Bible and its teaching about creation, fall and redemption. But how do the modern and postmodern worldviews respond to those questions? Um, you'll remember that when we, we listed the characteristics of modernity and postmodernity together a few minutes ago, one of the very important elements of modernity was the value placed on science. And modernity has in many ways embraced a scientific worldview. And many people have just taken this on board and never questioned it. But how do we actually learn about science? We want to spend a few minutes looking at a scientific story that you may be familiar with. So we're going to, have, we're going to watch something together. And I think you're going to introduce it. Bill, is that right? We're going to um, show you a science lesson, and it's about uh, somebody you'll all have heard of. It's Galileo, uh, who, as you'll know, was a uh, 17th century um, Italian scientist. Uh, and uh, you'll have all heard at school or on TV or uh, books and so on about his battle with the Inquisition. And we're going to show you 
uh, now a little presentation about that. All the statements contained in this have been drawn from uh, books or TV programs about Galileo, um, mostly over the past 20 years. Okay, were there any surprises for you in that second version of the Galileo story? It's not one I think that uh, we hear very often, um, but in fact it's a good deal more accurate than the first version. But the first version is, is, the, uh, is the one that we were all brought up on. It's the one which um, uh, outlines the modern opposition uh, between science and religion. So how does the first story that we saw, the modern, modernist Galileo story, how does it answer our worldview questions? Who am I? What answer does it give to this? Well, certainly not, I am created in the image of God. The answer is, I'm a resident on a minor planet. Where am I? Well, not at the centre of God's creation. I'm in an infinite universe, third rock from the sun. What's wrong? Well, it's certainly not um, uh, that we've sinned and we need forgiveness. What's wrong is that we wrongly believe that the universe revolves around us. But the earth is not the centre and there is no God who is sovereign over all. What's the remedy? Well, it's certainly not the vision of Christian salvation. It's leaving obscurantist religion behind and following the path of science and knowledge. If our brain is big enough, we can have a complete knowledge of everything, a theory of everything. We certainly don't need to worship or serve God. It's worth thinking about how we know that the earth goes round the sun. I don't know how many physicists, I know there's at least one mathematician here, I don't know if there are any other physicists or mathematicians, but most people, I think, um, know this, not because uh, they know the physics or the maths of it, uh, but because that's what we've been taught. And one of the things that the postmodern critique has done is to uncover the way that facts are contained in stories. We know that the earth goes around the sun, not because we can do the maths, but because we know the Galileo story. We know scientific truths because somebody we trust, a science teacher or a textbook, has borne witness to them. This is not just blind trust because in some areas we're able to test science's claim and we've seen its fruits, for example, in medicine and in technology. But is this so very different from the Christian vision? The gospel is a story of God's love for the world and his intervention in history to establish his kingdom. We know this because somebody we trust has borne witness to it. This is not just blind trust, because where it's been possible we've tested its claims and we've seen its fruits, for example in reforming social movements and individual lives. We can consider the historical evidence for ourselves and we can confirm that reality accords with the biblical vision. We have tasted and seen that God is good. 
Now, some people have used this insight that the way that we know things relies heavily on narrative and story and trust and witness. Some people have used this insight uh, to argue that this means that all truths are equivalent. All are just subjective stories that might be true for you, but not necessarily for me. As Leonard Cohen puts it, things are going to slide in all directions, won't be nothing you can measure anymore. When they said repent, I wonder what they meant. The world, according to this view, is just story all the way down. Now this has been called the bumper sticker view of postmodernism because it greatly oversimplifies postmodern critique and what uh, authors actually say. But nevertheless, it's extremely popular. It's an extremely popular perception of postmodernism. It's often described as relativism, the belief that there is no objective truth, no fixed moral anchor, only subjective accounts. It's true if it's true for you. Well, what can we say to this? Firstly, reality resists this conclusion. It resists this conclusion of relativism. The, relative, the relativist who insists upon the relative nature of, a, of the statement, a car is coming, okay, so they, that's a statement, and they say, well, the meaning of that statement is entirely relative. But that same person will employ a different principle when he crosses the road, a principle of objective meaning. We can rely on reality resisting error as God is faithful to the law order which he has instituted. So, Reality resists the conclusion of relativism. Secondly, the statement, all is relative, is an absolute truth claim. Relativism deconstructs itself. And thirdly, most relativists have, in fact, clear moral values, often admirable ones. Tolerance of others, preservation of the environment, dismay at warfare, they will be just as offended as any moral absolutist if these values are disparaged. So there are three reasons for being sceptical of the relativist in reading interpretation of postmodernity. Firstly, reality resists that conclusion. Secondly, uh, there is a, a logical paradox involved. And thirdly, in fact, most relativists have clear moral values. Okay, well, we've covered quite a lot of ground, so let's summarise where we've got to. Firstly, I've argued that trust and testimony are important for knowing the truth. The modernist claim that science is value-free is misleading. Secondly, I've claimed that evidence is also important for knowing the truth. No one will put their trust in a free-floating story. This is called fiction. To be taken seriously, narratives have to take account of evidence. Even Dan Brown, uh, the, the uh, novelist, claims to anchor his narrative in a world of evidence, however fanciful that is. If he didn't, no one would take it seriously as anything except fiction. And thirdly, Reality resists relativism and the assertion that all is relative is itself a truth claim.
So in this context, what does it mean to have a Christian testimony? In modernity, Christian testimony was narrowed down to personal or individual knowledge of God. Christians, especially evangelicals since the mid-19th century, abandoned the sphere of public knowledge to the secular sciences, which were assumed to be neutral. They focused on the individual and the personal. But times change, and this approach has left Christian testimony open to postmodern challenge. In postmodernity, everybody's got their own personal truth, their own story, their own spirituality. If we swallow the modern story, we can struggle to claim that the Christian story is unique. So, in conclusion, let's draw some of these themes together. Both modernity and postmodernity are narrowed down versions of a biblical worldview. The role of narrative in modernity is hidden but present. Modernity involved stories, was not uh, narrative-free truth. The postmodern critique has questioned the modernist claim that scientific knowledge is neutral. But to do so has itself relied upon rationality. The role of rationality in postmodernism is hidden but present just as the role of narrative in modernity is hidden but present. Secondly, the narrowed-down worldviews of modernity and postmodernity make idols of an aspect of creation. Truth in modernity was narrowed to a particular kind of reason and objective fact, and those aspects of the world, facts and reason, were deified and became idols that distorted the modernist perception of the world. In postmodernism, truth is fragmented and subjectified. Something can be true for you, but not necessarily for me. We each have our own truth. This deifies the individual subject and makes of each individual an idol. And in doing so, it also distorts God's world. The Christian understanding is that truth is God's, not ours. We can have reliable knowledge of truth, which goes beyond us as individuals, but not exhaustive or complete knowledge, as modernity claimed. We cannot know everything, but we can know in part, accurately, truthfully and trustworthily. Thirdly, knowing the truth involves witness and testimony, but also discrimination and testing. Christian faith is not blind faith, and it's simply foolish to trust somebody known to be untrustworthy. The postmodern critique is right to emphasise the role of testimony and narrative in knowing. But the Christian vision refuses to divorce this from the question of reliability and inquiry. Think of Moses in the wilderness. You remember the story. Moses is in the wilderness and he sees a bush on fire. Okay? A strange sight. So what does he do? Does he fall down and worship this mystical phenomenon? No. He investigates. He goes to see why the bush is not burnt. Moses went to look at the bush and then the Lord revealed himself to Moses. The Bible sees no conflict between testing and trust. 
The psalmist says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Investigate. Blessed is the man that trusts in him. Trust. At the beginning of his gospel, Luke describes a complex mixture of investigation, eyewitness reports and faith. Modernity arrogantly laid claim to total truth. Postmodernity distrusts reliable truth, asking what's the agenda? Well, the Christian agenda is to be truthful, to walk humbly before the truth. This involves the renewing of our minds as an essential part of Christian obedience. As Paul notes... Now, in in this presentation, we focused upon truth because um, truth and the foundations for truth are the the subject which most commonly comes up when thinking about and talking about uh, post-modernity and its impact on Christian faith. But it would be really misleading to leave it there. Um, We don't have time to extend uh, this discussion, but I want to mention just two other themes which are really vital um, uh, in, in any discussion of postmodernity and Christian vision. The first is justice. In modernity, uh, morality was a social consensus or it was based on reason. In postmodernity, there is no consensus, there is no single reason, no fixed moral anchor for ethics, for, for morality. In such a situation, Um, The biblical calling is to pursue justice and peace in a world devoted to violence. And that, I think, will become an increasingly important uh, Christian calling. The second major theme that uh, I want to draw your attention to, as well as uh, walking humbly before the truth and justice, the third that I want to to mention um, is mercy. In modernity, mercy was marginalised and one of the effects of the postmodern critique has been to draw renewed attention to the need for mercy and for forgiveness. Now, this has always been a feature of Christian living uh, from the police court mission of the 19th century to the hospice movement of the late 20th. I think one of the encouraging things about the contemporary church uh, is that it contains movements such as Soul Survivor and the Message Trust which have combined confident declaration of Christian truth with the practical pursuit of justice and mercy. In summary, we might recall Micah's uh, uh, summary of the uh, of covenant faithfulness. He has 
but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Okay, over to you. Anybody got any questions? Or discussion or points arising? But that underlying from the first book to the last is this um, 
vision of God's creation, of the fall into sin, and of God's plan, redemptive plan for restoration of his creation. And that that as a framework um, uh, underpins, underlines uh, our reading of scripture. And I don't know what to think about that. What you just said about creation, fall and redemption, that's they're what most people, myself included, think of as religious truths that have got not anything to do with science though, that's the thing. Okay. I think that's a valid comment. In, in what way are they not to do with science? What is it about them which makes them not to do well, with science? Well, if, if you're a science, scientist, in any discipline, it, it really has no impact, you know, to do with what you're doing. It's like, um, like I said earlier, it's like, um, it's like if you're doing cookery, it makes no difference for anything you're a Christian or not, it's still cookery. And it's the same for science, as I understand it. That, that's certainly what we've all been brought up to believe, isn't it? That science is, is value-free, that it's subjective knowledge, that it doesn't, re- doesn't depend but, on... But if, if that's not the case, how, how, is it, how, how does what you've just said about version 4, which I believe, I mean, what relevance does it have to science? Well, I think that the, the, the strength of the postmodern critique is that it's questioned that view of science. It's suggested that uh, the way that we all learn science, the way that we know that the um, Earth goes round the sun, for example, is not because we can do the maths. It's because we, we, we listen to a story, we have a story presented to us, which is itself part of a bigger story. It's part of a so-called enlightenment story that, that um, science broke free of religion, exactly as you say, uh, and presents us with objective truth, which isn't religious. But postmodernity has questioned that story and has drawn attention to the way that science is embedded in stories, in, in narratives, in accounts of things, which we believe because we trust the person that's telling us and we trust the book that's telling us. Is that why, what, what you just said about Galileo, that, um, I, I wasn't wholly familiar with what you, you showed, but I did know something about it. But that, that's very different, that's what you might say is, is like the story that went out of the that, that's been it's like any new story, it depends how it's told. But then that's a different order to Newton's laws, for example, which although they've been superseded by Einstein, still apply to all intents and purposes and are narrative free as far as I can see. Well, Newton's laws are a very interesting example because uh, a number of authors have argued that um, the reason that in, for the growth the background for the, the tremendous growth in the natural sciences in the 17th century was precisely um, the uh, Protestant view that God had created the world uh, and had subjected it to, a, to, to, to law, to lawfulness, to which he was faithful, but by which he was not bound. Um, so, as one, one author puts it, natural scientists in the 17th century started looking for laws because they believed in an orderly lawful lawmaker. So Newton's laws, historically, uh, are rooted in a changed belief about the nature of the world arising from the Protestant Reformation. I, I understand what you're saying, but that's like the, the philosophical underpinnings. But the, the law itself is very free. It, it just is, is checkable. Anyone can check it. How? 
Um, there is a coherence in the universe, and, but that is part of the Calvinist position, it's part of creation. But it's, it's made that way. Um, yeah, so a, 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 a postmodern narrative critique of the, the shuttle discussion would suggest that choosing the shuttle as the flies to illustrate the success of science is a bit picky and that you excluded the ones that don't fly and you said, well, something went wrong with those ones. It's that the, the, the best evidence is always embedded in a narrative, in a story of some kind, um, unless you focus down in the way that I was suggesting in, in those cases, some Calvinist philosophers would argue that there is narrative-free science, but that's a specifically Christian point of view. Most postmodern critics would say that. Last question about changing the subject now. Um, we were talking about epistemology, which is to do with the theory of how you know things. Mm-hmm. Um, knowing at first seems to me to be a different sort of knowing. You haven't mentioned that, I don't think, in postmodern or modern terms. But in the Bible, there's a lot about uh, this is eternal life, to know you, the one true God. And knowing God is linked with truth. Uh, for example, in the bit of one John we're going to look at tomorrow, it says, uh, it talks about um, no lies from the truth, and that there's such a thing as false prophets and uh, the spirit of Antichrist which tells lies. So that seems to tie truth and knowledge to the knowing person. Would you like to comment on it? Well, I, I think that the scripture doesn't um, see a conflict between knowing the character of God and knowing God's faithfulness in his works, in creation. Um, so that um, knowing God in a, a personal sense is entirely compatible with knowing God as the creator of the world who uh, um, subjected his creation to certain laws to which he's faithful and by which he's not bound. Um, so the, the, the two kinds of knowledge I think are, are very closely integrated in the scripture. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, again, I think if you look at the book of Job, that's that's the point, isn't it? That Job's comforters are trying to abstract something of principle of knowledge that you know that if you do things wrong, that must mean you know there's somewhere the the view that something nasty happens because you've done something wrong, and and Job says no, what happened in the world is because of God's covenant and God's wisdom. And then, they, they, then he talks about at the end. He talks a lot about creation, and saying that you know there are lots of things that the, that the world was created by wisdom, which surely is, is a claim that it makes sense. It's just that it's not always obvious that it makes sense. So I agree. I, I think the, 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 any any Christian epistemology must be based on, a per, on the nature of the personality of God and the the personhood of God and the. Um, to, and particularly the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. But it doesn't mean to say to some extent it can't be abstracted. It probably can, but 
that, that, was, uh, that was what I was yeah. trying to um, tease out of it. That, um, in terms of the world view, if we end up with a world view that is impersonal, whatever way we come yeah. at it, should we reduced it because the truth behind the universe is, is a person. Um, so that ought to figure in, in our understanding. Yeah. Well, I think that the, the, the Christian, uh, the Calvinist expression of the Christian world, the creation, fall, and redemption, uh, is, is intensely personal. That God created the world, that He didn't just abandon it uh, and, and wind it up like a clock and leave it to get on with things, but He's constantly sustaining and upholding the world. Without His word and power, nothing, things would cease to exist. Um, but when uh, the world fell into sin, didn't then abandon it, but covenanted with God the Father, covenanted with His Son and the Holy Spirit to redeem the world, intervened in history to do so. The, 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 um, the Sorry. 
um, whether people feel closer to uh, the, the, the modernist understanding of, um, uh, which has been focused on among evangelicals of, 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 of truth and doctrine uh, or whether these sorts of postmodern themes of authenticity uh, have more resonance for you. Does, does anybody have a, a view about that? Whether you feel closer to the one or the other? Um, it's one observation that is that in the church I think there's been a bit of a shift away from systematic theology and towards the biblical theology. And I wonder if that's maybe linked with these things. Okay. In the evangelical church at large, there's been a shift away from all theology. Uh, and if you, if, from my knowledge of the general scene in Brighton, I think a, if you got the ministers together and asked them to discuss theologically, they wouldn't know what you're talking about most of the time, to be honest. Whereas if you ask them to talk about authentic spirituality or something, that might be more. Yes. Yeah. Then does anybody else feel that? Probably a bit hard, but I think it's right. <laughs> There's some truth in that view, I think, yes. I mean, I've been, I've been um, emailing with um, Marcus Hanisett, who wrote the Meltdown book. I do feel that is true. You know, some of just said, I do feel that it is true in Brighton. There is a lot of postmodern thinking within the church. I mean, to answer your question, my, my view is, I mean, my background is very much in, imagine being a mathematician very much in the sort of modernist approach, but I, I think I've come to see that there are limitations with that. And, and it isn't, as you say, that neither is really an adequate understanding of the scripture. Um, but I think it's, what, what worries me is, that, is the abandonment of the idea of knowledge, the idea of almost of the possibility of theology, which is really, as I say, it seems to me to be an abandonment of epistemology, an abandonment of the actual possibility of knowing um, which is one of the things Marcus Hanisett says in his book, of course, that postmodernism is not, no longer interested in epistemology because it thinks there's no such thing. So coming back to your question, um, I think how, how we read the scripture, that, that um, within an evangelical world deeply influenced by modernity, scripture has tended to be read in a very doctrinal kind of way. That would be... I, I guess true up to about 30 or 40 years ago. But increasingly, scripture is read um, in, in precisely in a non-theological way, in, um, uh, in, in a way of taking individual um, texts for their spiritual value or in isolation. And that neither of these, I think, would be uh, an authentic reading of the scripture. That's the, what's, what's the best way? That's my question. How can we pull all this together and, uh, and have a better reading than either of those? Well, I think that, that, uh, that by having regard to the context of, of the scripture and the context in which we live our lives and drawing on, on both those things so that we're coming to the scripture from the point of view of, of the world that we're living in with questions and issues that we're facing and we're seeking wisdom from the scripture uh, but we're also uh, sensitive to the setting in which the scripture itself is, is, is written and the context with which it's written 
um, but that we seek scriptural truth in, in all of our lives rather than just in, in very narrow spiritual parts of our lives uh, or for uh, it's solely for its doctrinal content not that doctrinal content is unimportant quite the contrary I could just chip in there. I think the other thing that's important is not just to see each section of, of the scriptures as, as, as separate and self-contained, but to look at the whole sweep of, of the scripture and, and um, as we were talking about before, creation, for redemption, this whole drama really, uh, which the scriptures unfold for us, so that when we're reading um, the New Testament, we're reading so in the light of the Old Testament and, and, and so on. So it's, it, 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 we're getting an integrated picture. Of, of the whole of, of, of the, the, the view of the world creation of our place in it um, that, that the scriptures give. I mean, perhaps an, an illustration, a practical illustration, I, I was recently doing some work on um, the connection between food policy and global warming um, and uh, the way that, that uh, the kind of food that we eat um, affects this, this uh, very topical area of global warming and the threat to uh, the lives and livelihoods of a very large number of mainly poor people. Rich people like us will be able to build walls, it's the poor people who will suffer. Uh, and one way of approaching that, which, um, uh, which I find helpful in this and other contexts, is simply to have that question in mind and read the Bible from beginning to the end. So what, what does scripture say about these issues? And it's just astonishing how much scripture has to say about food. It, it's it, from beginning to end. It, uh, and we, we neglect all this. And it's it's uh, to our detriment if we don't. And we do the same with other issues, social justice. Oh, what, what, whatever it is that you're facing, absolutely. Um, sit down. Spend a few hours and, and with that particular question in mind and read through it. I'll just come back to the point that Philip was making a bit earlier about the whole area of, of relationship because I've kind of gone through a bit of a change of mind as I thought about this whole issue and uh, you know, looking at the Bible and our belief and trying to present it in perhaps a more modernist way by say doing what Paul would have said, he went to the synagogue and he reasoned, he, you know, he persuaded. So there's a certain uh, approach that he took, and it appeared to, to have worked. Um, but the thing is that I find that nowadays, as the, the, the days that we live in, it's not so easy uh, to do that because, you know, when you take the scientific um, angle, there are some assumptions one makes in any scientific environment and you know we talk about the area of um, evangelizing you know what you go out with some kind of assumptions to give people and I you know I was looking at a, a particular evangelistic <coughs> approach that we, they were using in America and it was, it was a great approach, but there were assumptions made that the people they went up to talk to knew what the Ten Commandments were and had a respect for them. But, you know, we know that wouldn't translate to somewhere like Bryson, who, I would say, certainly the younger generation wouldn't have a clue about the Ten Commandments, and nor would they have a respect for whether they broke them or not. So they're assumptions that already we can never use. 
in this situation. However, what I have found when I speak, I've spoken to those who don't have a faith or a Christian faith, when I speak about it from a personal or relationship point of view that I have with God, I find that you get more attention from that because it's people don't want to dispute something that you claim is personal to you and they're much more open to hear about that kind of thing. And so for instance what comes to mind is something like in Proverbs 2 where it says, you know, the fear of the Lord or the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Or if we say that wisdom may be a similar word to knowledge, we're saying that actually something about our relationship with God is the beginning part of understanding and knowledge of everything. So, you know, I've kind of shifted my understanding of how easy or difficult it is to get across to people as far as explaining my faith is concerned. Yeah, I, I think that, that um, what you identified is, is a good way into uh, in, to discussion in a postmodern context. The difficulty is um, that you come to the point where, well, that's fine for you, that's, that's what uh, uh, helps you to personal fulfilment, but as for myself, you know, I like the I Ching or Buddha or the Yin and Yang or, or something or another. Um, the, the weakness of it is that we have that, 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 that it can um, become a pick and mix spirituality. Um, so at some point, there has to be a meeting with what the real world is like. And whilst people might not know or care much about the majority of the Ten Commandments, and there'd be a few you might be sensitive to, everybody has um, a moral position, I think, an ethical position, because that's the way we're made. And by talking to people, you can make contact with what that is and then begin to explore that with them. But that's still in talking with people. In the end, you know, you can give your personal experience or something, but if you continue in relationship with that person, you know, our faith says that there has to be an evidence of it as well. It's not just we are giving a testimony of something that happened to you in the past. There is an actual outworking of it, and it's in evidence in your character and the way you relate to someone to a point one hopes where they begin to think actually there's something to be about it it's not just something for you I can see it actually affects me yeah. so it's very much down to I think long term relationship with people perhaps in a time now where relationships chop and change as quickly as jobs chop and change yeah, that, that's also, I, I, I agree, it's, it's, it's vitally important. I, I think that, that there's a range of different things. We shouldn't um, just focus on one thing, but there, there are a range of different uh, approaches that might be helpful with different people. Sorry, what do you mean? I was just going to say, really, that's what we ended up by, by saying, isn't it? And this, this, this time, it's not just relationships with individuals, it's also with Experience. 
it's, it does show considerably more respect for people's personal experience. And under modernism, if, if you sort of said um, something about your personal experience, the answer you get, well, nevertheless, science says this can't happen. That, that would be the sort of response you might very well get. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And the weakness that goes along with it is that, that then the response is, well, that's just your personal experience. My yeah. one's different. Yes, I agree. Yes. Um, so there has to be a link with the real world as well. But yeah, that, that, it does open up possibilities. And, and the, 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 the perhaps more traditional approach among evangelicals to reject um, uh, postmodern critique outright uh, is, is to disadvantage ourselves for precisely the reason that, that you and, and, and uh, our sister here have given. I, I could ask a really, I ask a really controversial <laughs> question and see what you think. All, all, our, all our basis of faith talk about the scripture being inerrant and infallible. Are those modernist words? Well, a lot of people would argue that they were. Um, uh, that, that formulation certainly um, came within a modernist context um, but it's referring to a truth which predates modernism going at least back to the early modern period with the magisterial reformers so I think what they're getting at um, is, is not limited by modernism but perhaps the formulation in the 19th century uh, under the influence of yeah. Scottish Enlightenment thinkers, was probably modernist. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 they're all right, as you say, as long as you take them in the context that they were meant. But uh, there is a danger of, of treating the scripture as if it's axiomatic. If it's a series, as if it's a series of propositions that you can construct logical conclusions from it. Yeah. In that language, and to read some authors that, that yeah. uh, they perhaps err uh, rather in that direction which is why Phil's point about the personality uh, yes uh, that, that, it, that the scripture doesn't have this conflict which we have in modernism between um, uh, between uh, necessary truth and personal truth I, I wonder if those terms are actually pre-modern rather than modern because modern, modernism tries to discover truth by human effort and experimentation, as opposed to receiving truth by revelation and authority. Well, perhaps they're anti-modern, an, anti-modernist rather than modernist, but I mean, they, 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 they are words that make sense in a modernist context. They probably don't make so much sense in a postmodern context. Thank you ever so much for stimulating our thinking and uh, enlightening us and uh, we're very, very grateful to you. Can we just express our Chris, if you will pray for us in just a moment, and just try and dig myself out of a slight hole and say, not got lots of good friends in the in the city who are ministers who might have very good theological conversations. <laughs> just got a bit of uh, dig myself out of that one. Uh, Chris, would you just pray for us, please? We do thank.
you, our Father, that you are a God who has uh, revealed yourself in many, many ways. But we thank you, most especially, you have revealed yourself in the Word of God. And we do pray, Father, that you would grant us such help by your Spirit we may think and act rightly and wisely and properly in the uh, world that you have set us in today. We pray, Father, for all the illumination that we need. We just feel so feeble and uh, weak and needy. We thank you that you are a God who comes near to us and uh, shows us what we need to know. So please speak to us, each one. And take the things that we've heard tonight and make them rich and lively in our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We did mention books over there. We've also brought a, a sort of jargon busting sheet. Some, some terms, uh, explanations of some terms that we often come across in personal dirty. And a, um, a, a reading list which might be of help. So they're over there. And Phil, you did actually put the mathematics up here, didn't you? Oh, yeah. Okay. Here. <laughs> so if anyone wants to know about mathematics, it shows me uh, how it gets right. The other goes around the sun. Um, that's static. Right. Just, just in case anybody thinks that uh, I'm down on the point. <laughs> it's just a derivation, Steve. It is. It's rotational. It's a deliberate mistake that someone.